Witch. I'm your host, Blue, a tarot reader, teacher, and witch, and you can find out more about me at bluejunetarot.com. Mystic Witch is a podcast about magic, divination, and all things supernatural. Hey, Mystic Witches. I'm here with Chiron Armand, founder of Impact Shamanism, a spirit-initiated shaman holding additional initiations in such New World traditions as Haitian Vodou, Brazilian Kimbanda, and the Unnamed Path. He is a trained hoodoo root doctor in the Southern Conjure tradition and is the author of Deliverance, Hoodoo Spells of Uncrossing, Healing, and Protection, and a book I often recommend, Clearing Spaces, Inspirational Techniques to Heal Your Home. He holds an MA in Performance Studies from New York University and a BA in Ritual Anthropology and Queer Studies from Hampshire College. He currently resides in Salem, Massachusetts, but offers healing and magic all over the world. Welcome to Mystic Witch, my dear friend. Thank you so much for having me. Yay! So I actually totally name-dropped you in my first episode. I was like, Chiron Armand, who will definitely be on the show. (laughs) And I was like, wait, I hope that actually really does happen. Because, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. But, you know, we we don't need that to go to your head. You've been doing such incredible work in New York and carving out such a an empowering path. Well, thank so, you, this old thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I have an opening question that I ask everybody. Uh, which tarot card do you feel represents you and why? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I would say the Hierophant. The Hierophant card because as I look at my life and as I try to live it, um, I am someone who doesn't seem to be able to get away from the spirit world there's a i remember uh, uh, someone read for me years ago they gave me a um a a chinese astrology reading in a cafe in the bay area and when they looked at me and they looked at the at the chart they said your life kind of is like a myth isn't it and i was like (laughs) yeah that's the great way of putting it like it's like even if I'm like at the bodega buying a bag of Doritos, like there's something mythic going on. So <laughs> it is an interesting and adventurous way of seeing the world, but it can also be a little like high intensity, you know? Yeah, for sure. The Hierophant is a really intense card. It's like, what other lessons do I have to learn? Jeez. Exactly. Exactly. It's, I would almost, I would almost go to say that there's like almost nothing mundane in my life, and if I think it's mundane, it's probably not. Yeah, compared to other people, it's like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, it's a little deep. It's a little deep. 
So do you want to give us a little background on some of your training, which is also very like Hierophant-esque actually, because you're, you're trained in, in a few traditions and that's such a like, find a traditional way of doing things card. So um, a little bit about what your training is. And honestly, what I really want to know is how you got into your spiritual path. I got into my spiritual path. I would, if I were to like really pick the shift, it was leaving home, dropping out of high school when I was 16, 17, moving to the East Village because I had seen rent and was like, okay, there was a place for me. So I moved in with this um, woman who had all these astrological oils uh, in Alphabet City, and she taught me a few spells uh, for jobs that worked. Then I picked up a couple of books on Earth-based spirituality. It was just like, oh, shit, the world is alive. And (laughs) I think the two books that I had picked up were Elements of Witchcraft for Teens by Ellen Dugan and um, (laughs) The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. You know, I picked up and I started reading it. I was like, wow, like, there's this whole worldview that brings together ecology and spirituality and sexuality and politics. And it really floored me. And that was around like the time of like age 17 to 19. So later on, um, I, I went to college. I went to uh, Hampshire college in Massachusetts. I was mostly studying the ideas of like theater and gender roles and ritual. But then my more sort of more formal magical training came when I was, studying different kinds of spiritual roles that queer people had played in different spiritual traditions and cultures, which brought me to the contemporary and very new tradition of the unnamed path that was being taught by the now late Eddie Gutierrez. Um, And I began studying the Unnamed Path, a shamanic witchcraft tradition for men who love men, with him. And he happened to be studying hoodoo, which is African-American folk magic from the American South. And it was years before he and I actually broached that subject. And it was actually because I had um, graduated right into the recession and couldn't find a job. And I had never booked a reading with anyone, but he had this hoodoo practice. And he was already someone I loved and trusted. And I was like, why can't I find a job? I'm living in my parents' house on Long Island. And as he was reading for me, he was like, you should be doing this. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? This? I don't even know what this is. Like, I'd already been doing witchcraft for myself and reading tarot in general. But, but the root doctoring tradition is... To me, really specific, and I think we're living in a time right now where we're always trying to reduce everything to the most common denominator. So everyone is just saying witchcraft, root work, root doctoring, uh, the, the occult, whatever. But really, the root doctoring tradition is one that is so grounded in diagnosis and prescription. So through him and through the people that I met uh, in the connections that he had, uh, I eventually trained in Brazilian Kimbanda. I was eventually initiated into Haitian Vodou. And I also had the great privilege of studying with a few contemporary Western shamanic practitioners around the United States that really, I would say, beefed up my cosmology. Because as much as I love folk magic and as much as I love people grabbing a candle and doing a spell, (laughs) folk magic 
as we're dealing with it, most of us, does not offer us a cosmology. And cosmology, which is a map, a way of seeing the world, uh, the ability to, you know, literally, like, go back to a story in a tradition and say, I'm here in the story, I know I'm here because I just went through that, and this is what's ahead. And in order for me to get there, I should expect to see you know, a witch carrying berries in the forest, and she's going to try and trick me, but if I keep my heart pure, then, okay, so that's what I need to do right now. I need to be working on my heart. That's the value of a cosmology, and in my work with these sort of shamanic practitioners around the U.S., I was able to deepen my own personal healing um, while bringing the tools that I had already learned to that, as well as develop um, a deeper understanding of these maps that can show us the way. I think that's really important to uh, just also just to have like a set of rules, you know, I think that it really helps you, especially if you're, if you're just getting started, I feel like it's important to learn the fundamentals, the rules of things before you start breaking them and bending them. Because if you don't understand what they are, how can you understand why they are? And also know that, like, your ethics are going to change. Your ethics are going to change. Um, You'll have beautiful, traumatic fallings out with teachers. (laughs) Um, You put (laughs) traditions down and think you'll never touch them again, only to pick them up again three years later. Um, No one can dictate your path for you, but that doesn't mean shun tradition. Right. We were talking before about... Uh, other types of responsibility when you're on this path. And one of them being a really important one being like checking in with yourself, um, checking in on your shadow work with real true accountability. Absolutely. I think, I think as I mentioned to you, when we were getting ready for this episode, you're catching me at a really salty time. (laughs) So I might not be particularly palatable or likable in this episode or nice, <laughs> but it, it's, it's really coming from a place of, I'll, I'm going to be really just like honest and intimate. I'm sad and I'm frustrated. I'm sad and I'm frustrated because, um, I want better for us. Mm-hmm. And when I say better for us, I mean, sure, everyone, all of humanity, but I also mean for those of us who feel called to, magic and witchcraft and the occult and shamanic practice. Um, these things are so at odds with American capital, with capitalism. They are terrible bedfellows. So here you have these traditions of personal and communal power, uh, really rocky paths to walk really deep things to mine in oneself and in one's landscape. And because we all have to make money and because we're all struggling with identity issues, it's all become, how do we just put out maximum production, maximum effort? How many likes can I get? How many followers can I get? How many books can I put out? Sure. Painful. Uh, path that cannot be easily commodified. So I feel like a lot of the information that we need to not be, not just be famous, but to be well is sorely lacking. And I would say that my path over the past few years has been 
an ever-deepening understanding of how not well I've been and how much effort I've had to put in to resist the truly, truly insidious forces in our culture and in our world that want to keep us enslaved, want to keep us down, want to keep us complicit with abuse, our own and others. Um, and, and we, you know, I, I think later on we'll talk some sort of some of the tools that are important, uh, at least in my own practice, toward that. But um, frankly, like if I were to sum it all up, we're all possessed. We're all possessed, and we're all hijacked. We're all hijacked to fucking death. Um, and sure, I think that there's some there's some way of seeing that. That's just like, well, Kai's just being a conspiracy theorist, and if we're all hijacked, who cares? Let's just drink the Kool-Aid, but for those of us who are involved in these arts, who care about the accuracy and quality of our divination, Mm -hmm. who care about the safety and longevity of the communities that we might build, the coven that we might really feel called to create, um, we feel like you know, Hecate is coming into our dreams and giving us information that, you know, we need to put into a book, you know, then, then we really realize, wow, accuracy matters and clarity matters. And what are the factors involved here that help or hinder me in being a clear channel for the forces and inspirations that are trying to come through me. So um, with the healthy bone concept, there is this idea that powerful archetypal energies, powerful creative energies, ancestral energies, spiritual energies are, are, are moving through us, moving through us into the world. You know, you look at the way that artists talk about, you know, their works are like, I didn't make this. It just sort of happened to me. It came to me. They were a channel. They were a vessel. They were allowed themselves to be filled. You also see this in the concept, the Hawaiian concept of the bowl of light. And then every child comes into this world like this pure bowl of light. And then as they begin to experience traumas or begin to internalize harmful things, it's like a stone being added and obscuring that light, making that light less able to come forth. So I sometimes think of, um, just because I came to this understanding around the time of Occupy Wall Street in Zuccotti Park, when that was really at a head, you know, someone who is really, really inspired to express the energy of leadership, and they get up on stage, and they're like, this, that, and the other, and we need to make changes here, etc., and then they see two women kissing, and perhaps they have some trauma uh, or familial or ancestral issues around, you know, seeing queerness. And all of a sudden, that beautiful, powerful energy of leadership, you know, the archetype of warrior that's moving through them, the, you know, ancient ancestor who was a, uh, in the military, who's healthy, is moving through them, and all of a sudden, all that energy just gets stuck, gets stuck in their body on that trauma, on that story. And now what's coming out of them is distorted. And now that warriorship energy that they were sharing with this beautiful crowd is diverted away from being, you know, coming through this clear channel because it's gotten stuck. Now multiply that by like 100 
100 stones in our light. Multiply that by 100 sort of like pieces of Velcro in us. And that's it's not that we are alone to blame in that. We live in a culture that has, as best as it can, hijacked us to death so that we are as traumatized and as complicit and as kept down and as full of stones as possible. Um, Because if there's less of you for you and what you've come here to do, well, then there's more of you for me and what I want and how I need to use your body. So like in a way, when we're talking, I think we used the term um, in preparation for this episode, spiritual zombies. It's true. Um, whether we're looking at the system of wage slavery in our culture, whether we're looking at all the ways in which we're constantly um, being told that intimate human exchange can only happen through buying a product, uh, all of this is the process of us being diminished so that our will, our expression in the world can be used for something else. Do you think that a lot of this comes from capitalism in general? Because you mentioned that in the beginning. Do you think that a lot of this is greed and ego based? I do. I do think it's greed and ego based. Uh, My current research is bringing me to a few different moments in semi-recent history. One of them is the loss of the commons in Britain. So the loss of the commons is, you know, you have various hamlets and various villages of people who are living rather leisurely celebratory lives. I mean, sure, they're farming and they're tending livestock, but they have access to this commons and they're just being well in a, you know, with, with, lots of annual festivals that uh, reaffirm community identity and are celebratory and, and honoring of the cycles of nature and connection to land. Yeah. And then you have people who thought, I would like to have all of this land. <laughs> I would like to have all of this land, and I would like to create the story that these people are idle, and that really their sense of personal value should come from them working for me. So this is taking place in like the 1500s and 1600s, and there are various wars taking place at that time that can be researched, battles taking place as the people are resisting being um, having, the, having the commons taken away from them and being sent to um, to London and other cities where they're cramped in small areas and um, not working becomes a punishable crime and this you know sort of nightmare has been created. So that's one thing I've been looking at a lot. The other thing that has really struck me in some of my research has been um, the ways in which so, so in one way as we're talking about hijacking and possession harmful hijacking and possession versus healthy possession. And what I mean by healthy possession or healthy uh, inspiration or spiritual uh, guidance is if, you, if, you know, if anyone ever 
is with me when I'm teaching, uh, it's very obvious. It, it, maybe it's not very obvious, but for those who have eyes to see, you can see I'm a very animated person. But if you like glimpse, you know, if you like uh, squint your eyes, you can see there's so much more going on than just me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that there's lots of different kind of energies that are moving through me that are, you know, expressing themselves. And this is, you know, the case for all of us. And I've been working hard to make these energies, uh, healthier energies versus less healthy energy, because I think that the same could be said for people at a Trump rally, you know, um, when, you know, everyone's chanting, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. And then the woman who's wearing the MAGA t-shirt, you know, sees a dark skinned person in the, in, in the room. I think that a similar force of inspiration and possession happens when she suddenly feels the need to grab that guy and dunk her coke over him. You know, we're talking about these these um, moments of inspired action and the things that are behind them, and I think that we're missing a huge piece of the picture when we just reduce it to issues of morality and ways of thinking. So um, exorcism, actually considering, all right, perhaps I'm hijacked and possessed and a lot of my will has been outsourced for purposes that I don't know about by various energies. And there's experiences of, um, there's you know, actions of exorcism, of clearing, of cleansing, of shadow work that can all aid in reducing our experience of having our will outsourced to unconscious spiritual and political energies that are hungry for our power because they are real, they are insidious, they are everywhere. But exorcism also exists on the opposite end. When we're talking about people taken from their lands and told you're not allowed to speak this language anymore. You're not allowed to speak this indigenous language. Um, there's, there's so, I mean, this is literally what has happened all over the world has been this sort of other kind of exorcism where tradition and culture were exorcised out of the people who carried them. And having connection, tradition, and culture is, and those expressions through regalia, through language, through community identity, these were and are protection against these other kinds of hijackings. Because if you're filled with your, the energy of your ancestral stories and culture and language, I would say you're less vulnerable to the salesman who comes and says, I've got a ticket to heaven for you. What are you talking about? I already know who I am. I already know who I am. So the stripping of context, the stripping of cultural context and connection to land is another kind of exorcism. So here we are, you know, mid-20th century, and um, European immigrants are coming to the United States, and they are being given new identities. And the new identities that they're being given aren't just, you're not Slovakian, you're not Polish, you're a white American. That's not the only new identity they're being given. One of the new identities that some of them are being given is you're an employee of Ford. So you had this literal um, ritual that took place in the Midwest where recent immigrants were actually guided into a cauldron wearing their traditional garb and clothing. 
and they were like symbolically stirred. And while they're in this like big giant cauldron, they're actually taking off their traditional clothing that tied them to thousands of years of history and the land at each other. And they emerge from the cauldron wearing these car industry uniforms and carrying American flags. This is what, to me, this is worthy of our attention. This is worthy of our taking action to reverse. I would say beyond worthy of it, I think it's necessary. It's imperative. I think it's imperative. And there are forces in our world that are really, really depending on the idea that we don't. Yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about uh, just being a healer or a spiritual worker um, and then trying to also heal your own relationship with money, right, and then market yourself. It's such a fine line because hashtag, hashtags are thirsty. (laughs) Hashtags are thirsty. And for those of us who are more energetically vulnerable, more spiritually attuned, um, I feel for us because we're really fucked. We're really, really fucked. I mean, if we're talking about a cultural, a culture in which indigeneity and anything connected to the land is not supposed to exist unless they can be wrapped in plastic and sold to the highest bidder, yep. then we really are, quote-unquote, not supposed to exist. Um, because we, we, our very experiences, cannot be commodified and sold. And in a culture that is almost like trying to pour as much trauma down our throats as possible, um, I think that we are the most vulnerable to possession and the most vulnerable to hijacking because we're already supposed to be operating in such a way that we are channeling unseen energies. That's, that's even more our realm. But if we have not had proper and healthy training, mm-hmm. if we have not been initiated into adulthood, fuck it. If we had not been cleansed and blessed and protected the moment we entered this world, the moment we crossed that veil, then we are at a serious disadvantage because there are so many things that are supposed to be in place to help this ride go smoother. Even without those things, people on this path, honestly, I feel look look the problem right in the eye in doing shadow work, they look at it and then just turn away. And honestly, I feel like delude themselves into believing that it's not necessary. And they see what they need to work on and they're not doing the work. I, I really do feel that way. Like, I understand why you're salty. <laughs> I get it. I would agree. And I think that a few things uh, contribute to that. I think one, the hijacking is real. I think that in one way, the person is looking at the process ahead of them, the work they need to do, the initiatory things they move through, and behind their eyes are the things that are saying, no, you're not going to kill me. Yeah. Whether it's the ego, whether it's the shadow pattern, whether it's you know the unresolved ancestor who is really stubborn and refuses to move on. So that person looks at the, act, the next action in their process that they need to take, and they think, I could do... And then the other voices step up and said, oh, <laughs> you will not. And then the response that comes out of their mouth is, you know, maybe next year. Yeah. So that's one piece. And the other piece is 
we actually aren't supposed to be doing this alone. Yes. Community really, really matters, but that requires having a community of people who are committed and commitment is where it starts because it's not saying that one person is perfect. I mean, that often, you know, or, or has the story that they're perfect because then that's a cult. <laughs> uh, nor is it everyone is perfect because then why would we need each other? But if you start with here are our community commitments, here are our community values, we can check in with each other and hold space for each other, not just hold space for venting, but okay, I know that you're having a really bad day. Did you check in with that soul part? Why not? Did you check in with that shadow part? Did you ask that spirit guide for the next action it best serves you to take? Okay, I know that what you're going through right now seems entirely unrelated to the process that you're that you know we've been discussing that you need to be dealing with, but what if it's entirely related? Yeah. Um, having these community accountability experiences really matter because we're talking about decontextualization and abstraction for the purposes of exploitation. It's everywhere. It's everything. The fact that we live in single-family homes, our very architecture is built to tell the story of separation and decontextualization. And that's great if I am an oligarch who wants to control and exploit you. Because if you are connected to community, family, ancestral stories, yourself, it'll be a lot harder. So let's create all of these single-family homes call it the suburbs, and now no one's connected to anyone except through these institutions that enable them to be exploited. Wow. You know, that's actually something that uh, has come up on the show before, that our government, almost in a way, is trying to isolate everyone, so there is no sense of community. (laughs) Yeah, and, and, and it's through that that makes it so much easier so that when the government then says, I don't know, maybe we should just kill everyone. You're like, I don't know. I'm alone. I don't really have a sense of identity. That sounds like a sense of identity. Yeah, it'll totally be a sense of identity. Here's a uniform. (laughs) Mm. Well, on that note, I think this is a good opportunity to take a break and we will be right back. Welcome back. We are still here with Chiron Armand. And um, I just wanted to clarify, we're talking about real everyday possessions that people experience um, by negative energies that we all confront every single day. This is something that we all have to deal with. This is not The Exorcist, the movie. This is real life 
stuff and that kind of possession, the demonic, overhyped, it's not a real thing. At the very least, it's very rare. So um, Kai is actually going to share some personal experiences, real experiences of being possessed, some healthy and some unhealthy. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the first part of this episode, as I was talking about um, sort of inspired actions, spiritual inspiration in healthy ways and ways that that manifests, like <laughs> it's a really um, silly example to bring up, but in the in the show uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, <laughs> there's this scene where uh, Jacqueline uh, is trying to figure out her, uh, who's never cooked in her life. She's this sort of rich older woman living in Manhattan and she's just married this guy and there's this corn pudding recipe that she's been given but she but it doesn't have amounts for the ingredients it's just a list of ingredients and she was like how will I make this corn pudding recipe for my husband's family I don't know what to do and she literally goes Mima Mima slash grandma is the one whose recipe it is and she goes oh Mima help me and then suddenly, like, the dead grandmother of her <laughs> husband's family appears behind her and wraps her arms around her. And they do a total shit. ghost scene from they the movie They do a ghost. total ghost scene <laughs> as Mima helps her prepare this recipe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even that meme that goes around that's like, Latinos never measure their seasonings. We just wait for our, you know, we just sprinkle and shake until our ancestors say child stop you know we're, we're talking about the presence of these healthy supportive connective tissue energies in our lives and how they move us further and further toward deeper connection and inspired actions that uplift and connect and make whole versus not having the presence of these energies that are connective and us just being isolated, still channeling, still here, still present, still vessels. But what are we channeling? What are we vessels for? Um, this is one of the, you know, so cursory, but so simple. This is one of the reasons why we pray before divination. We want to make sure that what's coming through is something that we know and that which serves life. Because I've absolutely so many times done divination for myself or started doing divination for a client and realized, oh shit, this divination is hijacked, you know, by forces in that are taking place behind me because perhaps I didn't cleanse enough and call in my protection strong enough, or something in the client's life that's very much like what you mentioned before, like, oh no, you're not gonna look at this. We told you we're not gonna look at this, we're gonna stay stuck today. <laughs> not today. <laughs> you know? So a story that I have around possession, because it's not, possession to me is not just, a uh, harmful possession is not just always a singular entity. Sometimes it's the energy of forces. I think that many of our leaders in our world are deeply possessed by the energy of Wetiko, which is the Cree indigenous word for the, um, a sort of mythical cannibalistic entity that is, you know, tries to devour everything. Uh, if anyone has ever heard of the, the sort of hungry ghost idea, Watiko to me is the non-local 
hungry ghost energy of colonialism and consumerism. And I would say that all of our political leaders are deeply possessed by Watiko. Um, also, I believe that they are possessed by the idea of empire. I think that we can also be possessed by ideas. Um, but forces like that, these non-local forces, forces like xenophobia and queerphobia, which we can be possessed by, you know? I think that people are really possessed by those energies when they feel the need to get, like, a tattoo on their body that expresses white nationalism. Um, but forces like that are riding on the coattails of more acute possessions. So uh, the the force, the entity of white supremacy and white nationalism has greater access to John, 20 years old in the Midwest, because three of his most recent male ancestors are also unresolved and riding him all the time. They're unresolved. They never crossed over. They were dealing with their own stuff. Um, they remain ghosts, and their acute possession of him is the perfect doorway for these larger uh, non-local energies and entities and forces to possess him too. Um, so in my own experience, I, I sort of had the experience of navigating ancestral force issues. It was about two years ago that I had a a reading done that was in a very specific tradition. And the reading was like, we don't have a concept of reincarnation in this tradition, but I've got to say, you're pretty much the reincarnation of your grandfather uh, on your father's side. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I was struggling at that time with some mental health issues, some substance issues, um, and it took me a while to connect the dots that this grandfather of mine, one of his big fallings out with the family was his own substance issues. Um, so my first step in that was to, A, become aware, become you know start tracking information. I was able to track that information and realize, okay, if uh, something that I'm dealing with right now is something that he was dealing with, maybe there's a connection. Uh, and then I realized that my own uh, birth middle name was his middle name. Now, I come from a family that doesn't believe in reincarnation, doesn't believe in magic, uh, doesn't believe in anything outside of um, sort of Christian fundamentalism. But some force knew that I was the reincarnation of this guy enough that my parents gave me his first name as my middle name. Uh, and that took a few months to click. So my next step was, okay, if I'm the reincarnation of him, is he healthy? Has he crossed over? And he had not crossed over. He had not moved on. Uh, that's the thing about unresolved dead. Uh, they can be well-meaning. The vast majority of unresolved dead are not utterly evil. They're just in limbo. They're just in limbo, and they no longer have a body to work their stuff out through because everything is the body. The body is the archive. Um, but you have a body and I have access to you. So maybe I can work out my stuff through you. So sure, I'm going to be inspiring that joke that made the whole room laugh, but I'm also going to be inspiring that reach for that 
additional alcoholic drink that maybe I really don't need, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I'm an unresolved dead person and this is me and we are fluid. Um, so I had to engage in the process of crossing this ancestor over um, so that I no longer had his unresolved stuff to deal with. And once I was able to cross him over, what then stepped into view was a larger issue in that ancestral lineage that contributed to him having those substance abuse issues in the first place. And if I had tried to skip that, if I had just tried to, uh, if someone had just come to me in a reading and said, you have this ancestral issue around uh, power and expression, and then I was trying to deal with that while having the acute issue of having this unresolved ancestor globbed to me with his substance abuse issues, that would have been overwhelming. It was already overwhelming. It was already too much. I had to clear my personal space. I had to uh, move him on and create more of a safe space within my own personal environment, my own personal sphere, so that then I could come to understand and see, oh, part of the reason why he was dealing with this and why I'm now dealing with this is this older ancestral piece that need to be taken care of. And I've actually had this experience with uh, my paternal grandfather as well as my paternal great-grandfather. And they manifested in different ways. Uh, the paternal great-grandfather issue was less an issue of acute possession or acute uh, being ridden by that ancestor. And it was more an issue of a thwarting of power uh, that happened way back in the ancestral line that needed to be cleared in the form of an ancestral pattern. So an ancestral pattern in my practice is when someone who is in our ancestral line takes an action that reverberates throughout the line. And someone very, very old in my paternal ancestral line, uh, paternal grand great-grandfather's ancestral line, uh, was a king who had walked away from his throne. So here I was trying to move on my great-grandfather in 2016, not understanding why I couldn't move him on. He was a very healthy man who was a musician who contributed so much to the community. And it's okay if he got stuck. Let's just move you on. And he, you know, here I am in journey, and he's crying and revealing to me, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I'm like, why? And my spirits take me to this older issue that got in the way of his expression of his soul's purpose in this lifetime. He himself was so overwhelmed, like my paternal grandfather, by this ancestral force that was holding him back from his potential. Wow. So these are just sort of experiences of everyday possession. Everyday possession that we're dealing with, not just, uh, you know, Mima helping us make that corn pudding, but those liminal spaces and times, always communal. And this is what I think that a lot of Hollywood or um, reality television is often trying to get in on in the occult and spirituality communities. <laughs> uh, they want to see possession because, you know, I'm an Ungan in Haitian Vodou, and everyone knows that possession plays a huge role in the tradition. Why? Because I can do divination. I can take out my tarot cards. I can take out my bones. And that's all great. That's me asking to be communicated with through these tools. 
And there are some traditions that really, really value this. Haitian voodoo, Brazilian quimanda, many indigenous traditions that there's nothing more valuable than the spirits fully stepping into our realm and affecting us. And in my experience of going to FETS, being in consulta with Eshu, these have been extremely powerful times that I, it's kind of weird to talk about this because I almost feel like I have to talk about skepticism. And that's the first conversation that the Western rationalist colonial mind wants to have. Well, is this person really possessed? That's so boring. That's such a divergence from the value and necessity of the experience. Everyone wants to know, well, is there really ghosts? I don't know. Are you struggling with substance abuse issues and having no sense of identity? Can we talk about that? Can we talk about the meat of this world and what our culture has done to us as communities and individuals? A couple of quick stories from my experience. I remember the first fact I ever attended, um, a loa coming down on my mambo. Uh, and it's, it was a really powerful experience because my first time seeing possession and uh, the force that she was carrying was so much bigger than her and so commanding. And I remember that the spirit that was riding her, because she was the horse, that's one of the words that we use in Loa and uh, Vodou, when you are possessed by the Loa, you are one of you are a horse. And there are some people who are considered to be really good horses, and they, you know, the spirits will often choose them again and again to come through in experiences of full possession, which is different from these sort of everyday possessions we've been talking about, these small but acute and impacting ways that we express these forces in our lives. Uh, this is the more overt kind of possession in which the person's personal consciousness is no longer there. It takes a backseat, and almost always they have no memory of what has taken place. So uh, this Loa, when they, you know, they're going down the line, greeting everyone, and they come to me, and they take a big swig of rum, and they spray it on me, and it is one of the, that was one of the most psychedelic experiences I've ever had. Now, I've drunk rum, I've sprayed rum, I've had rum sprayed on me in cleansings, but having, having this Loa spray rum on me through the body of my mambo was so overtly psychedelic, I lost time and space, stumbled backwards, and it took me a good 15 minutes to be able to come back to normal consciousness. So that's one experience amongst many uh, in communal possession experiences. I've had uh, Loa and Orishas, when I've attended Bembe's, come up to me and give me personal information about myself, uh, make requests. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I will uh, help you out. There's, there's nothing really more valuable in my experience. And, and one of the things I think that the um, overall occult and witchcraft communities is lacking, and, and we're lacking it because we don't really have these communal experiences, not to the extent that we should, nor are we skilled and trained enough to be able to handle them. 
we're sorely lacking these direct, intimate experiences of engagement. Another uh, experience that will often happen in some of these traditions is that the spirits will come down and do magic right there in front of you. Not necessarily sparks flying, although that does happen. There's tons of accounts of Loa and Orishas coming down, riding their horse, and then doing things to the human body that simply cannot be done or could not be handled. Um, But again, that goes into the I want to show you that I'm real space. What I think is really valuable for us is when they come down and then they tell someone, bring me those leaves. And then they make a bath right in front of you and pour it over you. Or they begin to sing a song into your ear and bring you to tears, or they anoint you or touch you. Um, The gods and the spirits, we can go to them in journey in trance. That's one of the primary things they teach, how to navigate those experiences. But it is absolutely valuable for us to learn how to bring them to us which requires community because if I get possessed here in my apartment alone and no one is here to see it, this has no value. Someone, at least one other person has to be here either to translate and record what has come through or to be the recipient of the medicine and healing that's coming through. Yeah. So you said that you offer um, some type of class on this? I will be teaching a class on folk magic at New York Open Center. Uh, the class starts late May, and that's in Manhattan. Um, and sometimes I teach online classes around navigating trance, mediumship, and divination. Awesome. And where can people find that and ways to book you for, as you called it earlier in the show, diagnosis? If they want to see if they have these issues, so how can they book you for that? Okay, so you can find my work at impactshamanism.com. Perfect. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, that's it. Uh, I would encourage always deepened awareness uh, and keeping an open mind to the forces that are at play in our overall world and in our lives. Our lives are so valuable. And this is a rescue mission. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what we need. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kai, so much for coming on the show. I'm so happy to be able to share your wisdom with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Follow us at Mystic Witch Podcast or email mysticwitchpodcast at gmail.com.